Matthew 5, 11-16 Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great, great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how it can be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify you, your Father in heaven. You may be seated. Amen. Welcome, everybody. It's good to have you. If you have youth who would like to participate in Missio Youth, they can... Uh, Head out, follow Rianne into the, she's waving her hand in the air, and she, you can follow them into the glass chapel for Missio Youth that will happen during the service, and then they'll be invited back in here to finish worship with us after the sermon, which is rude uh, that you don't want to listen to me, but I get it. <laughs> uh, would you pray with me as we get started this morning? Jesus, thank you so much for your words today. We find ourselves at one of the most famous and familiar passages in our Bible. And I think that familiarity and that consistency with those words can sometimes render them as though they are cliches. And so today, would we hear them afresh? Would we hear them anew? Would we know what it is that you're inviting us into? And would we feel both the challenge and the encouragement to be your followers, to take your words seriously and live as salt and light in the world? God, be with us. Be with me as I preach this sermon. Pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, again, welcome. Uh, my name is Johnny Morrison. I am one of the pastors here. If you're new it's so good to have you, and I'll be around after the service. Love to get to know you, love to meet you, uh, chance to connect. Last week, we started a brand new series looking at the Sermon on the Mount. Heather began that for us last week. And the Sermon on the Mount is an interesting set of passages. It is sort of like a greatest hits album of Jesus' teachings. Throughout it, we get some of Jesus' most famous words, most familiar words, the ideas, the concepts, the teachings that we are most familiar with, that we recognize immediately. You get salt and light, as from our passage today. This is where you get turn the other cheek. This is where you get the uncomfortable love your enemy. This is where you get the beloved remove the log from your own eye before you remove the speck from somebody else's eye. We get so many very famous very beloved, very familiar teachings from the Sermon on the Mount. And I think because we are so familiar with these words, because they're so common, because they're so consistently said, I think that something has happened in our hearing and our teaching of the Sermon on the Mount that though they are familiar, they are also deeply neglected. They're ideas that we know, they're ideas that we love, but I don't know that they are ideas we have deeply wrestled with or that we have really contended 
with or that we take all that seriously as followers of Jesus. And, and for example, this uh, happened pretty recently. I was having a conversation with a Christian, someone I love, someone I respect, someone who grew up in the church, someone I think very, very highly of. And we were talking about what are some of the core teachings of Jesus? What is essential to being a follower of Jesus? And I said, loving your enemies is an essential teaching of Jesus. And this person said, huh, that's kind of a new idea, that loving your enemies would be an essential part of following Jesus, which is kind of wild to say, because in just a few verses, Jesus will say, love your enemies, pray for those who harass you, so that you will be acting as your father. Jesus says, if you want to act like your father, if you want to be children of your father, you should love your enemies. And he even goes on to say in verse 48, love as your father who is complete in showing love to everyone. So you also must be complete in showing love to everyone. Jesus says if you want to be like God, if you want to be like your father, if you want to look like his children, then you would love your enemies. You would turn your other cheek. When somebody asks you to go a mile, you would go with them two miles. Now, I don't say this story to shame this person. I don't think it's their fault at all. I think I do the same thing all the time. I think, though, what it does is it reveals the ways in, we, in which we often neglect the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount. They have become, I think, for us, great one-liners, really fun spiritual platitudes or cliches that are delightful on a coffee mug, but not something that really dictates the way that we live. If we want to know what it looks like to be a Christian, we have to go to other parts of the Bible. We go to Paul, we go to the epistles, which are great and beautiful, but somehow the Sermon on the Mount has been relegated to a different place. Nice ideas, nice words for nice Christians, but not something that really matters in our day-to-day life. And I wonder what has happened to make these familiar words so insignificant. And I've been thinking about this all week, and I've been thinking about it in light of tomorrow being Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And every year, uh, right around Martin Luther King Jr. weekend, I have a practice of rereading letters from Birmingham Jail. I think it's a good practice for me personally. And if you've ever read King's letter from Birmingham Jail, it reads a bit like the Sermon on the Mount. In one part, because King references the Sermon on the Mount all throughout the letter for the reasons that they are struggling, for the reasons that they are fighting, but I think even more so it reads like the Sermon on the Mount because of the way in which King writes and the way in which King challenges us. And as I was reading his letter, something stood out to me near the end of it, which I think speaks to the way we often approach the Sermon on the Mount. King says this, I've watched churches stand on the sidelines and merely mouth pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities. Spiritual platitudes and cliches. And I've watched so many churches commit themselves to completely otherworldly religion, which made a strange distinction between bodies and soul, the sacred and the secular. I think what King names here is what often happens to the way that we interpret the Sermon on the Mount. It becomes about private spirituality. 
But what happens internally, what happens in our own lives, or maybe it's a measure for kind of like mature spiritual Christianity. It's a way of knowing God more, but it is not actually something that is meant to be lived in the world around us. These are nice words, but not for the real world. Our faith has become sort of divided in between things that we believe and things that we do, and the Sermon on the Mount is not a part of that equation. And I think that there is some serious consequences for us when the Sermon on the Mount gets so relegated away, when it becomes otherworldly. I think in the passage that we're reading today, Jesus warns us about losing our saltiness. And I think when our faith becomes so privatized or so spiritualized, not a city on a hill that shines out for all to see, when it becomes so independent of the real world around us, I think we begin to lose our saltiness. And I want to read you another passage from King's letter, and this is a little longer one. I didn't put it up on the screen just because I'm lazy and I didn't want to copy and paste all of it. But here's the quote, buckle up, it's a little longer than the last one, but I think it speaks to what happens when we lose our saltiness. King says this, there was a time when the church was very powerful, It was during that period that the early Christians rejoiced when they were deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was the thermostat that transformed the mores or morals of society. They went on the conviction that they were a colony of heaven and had to obey God rather than man. They were too in intoxicated with God not to. But things are different now. The contemporary church is so often a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. I meet young people every day whose disappointment with the church has risen to outright disgust. King wrote this letter in 1963. But if you're reading it, it feels to me as relevant as it ever was. My brother-in-law was with me over Christmas, and this is the other reason I'm thinking about this a lot. My brother-in-law was with me over Christmas, and I love my brother-in-law. He's a good man, and he respects me. He loves me. I want to preface all of this. Uh, We have a really good relationship. Uh, We have a really good relationship. He realized the other day that I'm the male figure who's been in his life the longest next to his dad, who I've been around for forever. Uh, so we, have a really, we have a really good relationship, but he cannot understand. He like cannot understand why I'm a Christian. There's no place in his mind. He just like doesn't get it. He cannot get it. He respects me. He loves me. He thinks that we do good things, but he just cannot understand why I would be a Christian. And this is someone who grew up in the church. And it'd be easy to criticize him, I think, when I'm feeling defensive and be like, ah, you're just deconstructing, you've just left your faith. But I think knowing my brother-in-law, there's has more to do with this last line that King uttered, is that I meet young people every day whose disappointment with the church has risen to outright disgust. Our faith has become so devoid of the ethics or the way or the power, to use King's language, of self-sacrificial love that it has no saltiness. And my brother looks at it and is like, yeah, I don't, why would you do it? And that's not been true of all of us. My own experience with the church has been really beautiful. I've told lots of those stories here before. 
But I think we can testify, we can witness in some way to the words that King is saying, that our witness has lost some of its saltiness. And I think it's because we have reduced the words of Jesus to spiritual platitudes, to cliches that are nice to say and nice to utter, but not things to be taken seriously. And I think there's another consequence to this, is not only do we lose our witness, not only do we lose the thing that makes us distinctive in the world, not only do we stop acting as colonies of the kingdom, to use king's language, I think we also lose what makes following Jesus compelling to us. When we so reduce the words of Jesus to something that is otherworldly, that is just private spirituality, that is just a checklist of moral deeds, then we lose also what is compelling about being a follower of Jesus. But as people listened to Jesus, and as they heard these words, and as this sermon upended the world in its first century context, it was because the vision that Jesus offered was compelling enough to live for. That as the disciples looked at Rome, they were like, oh no, no, this is better. The thing that Jesus is doing is better than this structure around. Heather walked us through the Beatitudes last week, which flips the hierarchies of value and priority up on its head. And the disciples looked at it and they were like, yeah, yeah, I'd live for that. I'd pick up my cross and follow this Messiah because this thing is compelling. This thing is good. This thing offers something to me and to the world around me. But when we reduce the words of Jesus, not only do we lose our saltiness, not only do we lose what makes us distinctive in the world, I think we lose what makes it compelling to us. Our own salt, our own flavor, so to say. So we need the Sermon on the Mount. And the good news is that we have it. It's right here. We can read it again and again. And here's what I would invite us to do as we look at these words today and as we look at them over the next handful of weeks. Is could we wrestle with these words as though Jesus meant them? Could we wrestle with the words of Jesus as though he intended them as though he meant them, and as though as he wanted us to take them seriously. So when Jesus, when Jesus says, turn the other cheek, would we wrestle with what it might mean to turn the other cheek? And when Jesus says, love your enemies, would we wrestle with what it means to love our enemies and not find a thousand ways around loving our enemies? Would we take these words seriously? Because I think if we are willing to take these words seriously, yes, it will challenge us, and yes, in some moments, it will feel a bit like an indictment on the modern church. I think that's true. But I think more than anything, it will feel like an invitation into the compelling vision of the kingdom that Jesus was offering to his first century disciples. I think if we take these words seriously, we will find again what the disciples and what the early church found so beautiful about being Jesus' followers. Why? Jesus' followers were originally called followers of the way, not believers. They were called followers of the way. Isn't that interesting? And then in Antioch, they were called Christians, which meant little Jesuses because of the way they 
live the way they followed Jesus. So I think, again, we could find that if we took these words seriously. And so with that said, what is the Sermon on the Mount? Heather began to introduce this idea to us last week, but just for the sake of review, what is the Sermon on the Mount? Because I think everything I've just said is good. Everything I've just said is true, and it can also start to feel like a list of requirements or a burden. And is that what the Sermon on the Mount is intended to be? If it's not about private spirituality, what is this message meant to do? The New Testament scholar Scott McKnight says very quickly that the Sermon on the Mount is the moral portrait of Jesus' own people. I think this is an interesting idea. That when Jesus preaches, when Jesus explains these words, when Jesus is with his disciples walking through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is describing what his people are supposed to look like. This is what my followers will be. This is what my followers will look like. This is how we are salt and light in the world. But it is not a list of requirements or a checklist that we do these things in order to be Jesus' followers. Instead, Jesus tells us that it is a picture of what we look like because it is a picture of what God looks like. When Jesus tells us to love our enemies in verse 48, we read this text already, he says, love your enemy because this is how your father loves. Love because this is how your father loves. This is who God is. And because we're following God and because we are the people of God, that is who we become in relationship with this God. Because our God loves enemies, we love enemies. Because God turns his cheek, we turn our cheek. When God is asked to go a mile, God goes two, so we do. When we're unfaithful, God is faithful, so we're going to be faithful. One of my favorite theologians, Stanley Hauerwas, says it this way. Jesus' whole life is a commentary on the sermon. And the sermon is the exemplification of his life. The two go together. Jesus is explaining what he's doing and doing what he's explaining. The sermon, therefore, is not a list of requirements, but rather a description of the life of a people gathered by and around Jesus. It is rather a description of the life of a people gathered by and around Jesus. Or maybe to say it more simply, the Sermon on the Mount is an invitation to know, to follow, and to become like Jesus. In these words, we get to see what God is like. And as we experience what God is like, and as we get to know what God is like, and as we attempt to follow Jesus and be in relationship with Jesus, we are transformed through his spirit, together, into this kind of people. Who love like God loves, who walk like God walks. And as we do this, and as we follow, and as we become like Jesus through the spirit, we make Jesus known to the world around us. The metaphors that Jesus uses to describe that are the ones that we read today, salt and light. As we follow Jesus and as we become like Jesus, then we become the salt and light 
of the world. And we'll explain these metaphors in just a moment, but if we were to make it very simple, you could say taste and vision. Become a little taste and a little vision of the world that Jesus is building, the kingdom, the reality of God that is emerging into the world around us, the kingdom that is near, as Jesus would say. These two images, salt and light, get at everything that we've been saying. Two different metaphors that help us understand that this is not about some otherworldly religion. It is about following Jesus here and now. The first image is that of salt. I love salt. Just have to be honest, I love it. I like to cook, uh, so I like to put salt in everything. But I also like to put salt on things that people think is weird. I like to put salt, yes, on normal stuff like french fries, but I also want salt on my ice cream. I also want salt on my Pop-Tarts. I also want salt on my watermelon. If you've never had salt on watermelon, you are missing out. Salt has this way of enhancing the flavors that already exist in something. It seasons food, but it also brings out the already existing flavors in a dish. This is true in the ancient world as well. Salt was the primary flavor component of the ancient world. Some scholars believe that Rome's roads were built almost entirely to make sure that the transportation of salt was done safely and efficiently because it was so important, yes, for seasoning food, enhancing the flavor of food, but also because salt was the primary preservative of the ancient world. If you wanted to keep food for a while, salt is your best go-to. How many of you know this? There's no refrigeration in ancient Rome. So they would use salt. Salt preserved meat, but they would also use salt for all sorts of additional purposes, like an antiseptic. It was one of the primary ways of keeping wounds clean and safe so they could enable healing. These two images of enhancing flavor and preserving food or even preserving life presents a very powerful image of what Jesus' followers are supposed to be, the things that we have just been naming. That Christians or Jesus' followers of the church are a people who enhance the flavor and preserve the good of the world around them. This is not about some otherworldly spirituality. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. That word earth means earth. And your job is to preserve and enhance what is good and right in the world around you. We believe that God is at work in this world. We believe that God is on a mission to bring all things to renewal. To be salt and light is to be participants in God's good work. To enhance the flavor, to preserve what is happening. My friend and pastor Jeremy Duncan says it this way, salt is what preserves, points to, seasons, and elevates all the goodness God is already doing all around us all the time. I love that. Salt is what preserves, points to, seasons, and elevates all the goodness God is already doing all around us all the time. The job is not to be the chef. The job is not to make the food. The job is to be a participant in what is already good, what is already happening, to enhance it with your life, with your gifts, with your wiring in your community, to preserve it as you are. Salt, though, was not just about food or its like medicinal purposes. Ancient Israel would also use salt 
as a way of signing or sealing a covenant, which is super interesting. Because salt was the best preservative that people had, it became a bit of a symbol of like a lasting contract or a lasting promise. You wanted the promise to last, you wanted the covenant to last, you would often say that it is a covenant of salt. This is true all throughout the ancient world. The Aramaic word for treaty is the verb to salt. This is interesting, to preserve, to keep, to hold to. There's an example of this in Numbers 18, 19. God is speaking to the people of Israel and talking about the covenant he's making with Israel. But the, the language I want you to focus on is here. God says, this is a permanent regulation. It is a covenant of salt. Forever in the Lord's presence for you and your descendants. It is a covenant of salt. The idea is that salt is like your signature on a deal or a contract or a promise. If you wanted it to last, if you wanted to show that you were committed to this deal, that you were committed to this covenant, then you would salt it. So what does it mean that you are the salt of the earth? Yes, you preserve. Yes, you enhance. Those food metaphors would have most certainly been there for the people of the ancient world. But I think Israel also, knowing what salt is used for in covenant language, theological language, I think they would know that God is saying, you are my signature in the world. You are my signature in the world. You are a sign that I am committed to this place, that I love this place, that I am at work in this place, that I have not given up on this place, that I am up to something, that I am bringing about my kingdom, that I'm establishing my purposes, that I'm renewing all things. You are the covenant of salt that testifies, that demonstrates, I am here, I am committed, I am in relationship with this place, and nothing will change that. You are a sign that I am committed to this world and that I am at work in it. What a, what a beautiful idea. Missy, have you ever thought of yourself as a sign of God's love to the world? Have you ever thought of yourself as a sign that God is still at work in this world, that God is committed to this world? You are a sign of God's promise to the world, of God's covenant commitment, a seal on the deal. Sometimes later, writers in Scripture will use the language of first fruit, that God is doing something, a harvest is coming, and you, church, you're the first evidence of the harvest. Not because you're perfect, not because you're all right, not because you have everything together, but because you've experienced the goodness of God, and now you get to testify to it, witness to it in the world around you. You've tasted a little earlier. You are the salt of the earth, a sign of God's commitment to this world. In the same way, when Jesus says, you are the light of the world, light throughout Scripture, 
speaks to revelation, the testimony of truth, the hope. To be the light of the world is to reveal the goodness of God to the world. This is what Jesus says in verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before people. Why? So that they can see the good things you do and praise your Father who is in heaven. Your light testifies to the goodness of God. It reveals what God is up to. It shows the world that God is committed. It shows the world that God loves. This is what Jesus says to his disciples. They will know that you are my disciples. How? That you love one another. To be salt and to be light is to be a taste and a vision of God's work in the world, of God's reality in the world. To use King's language again from earlier, it is to be colonies of heaven. Second Corinthians, Paul says, ambassadors of Christ, who because we have experienced God, make God known to the world around us. What if, Missio? What if we took this vocation and the words of Jesus here seriously? What if we saw ourselves as signs of God's love to the world, as God's commitment to the world, as evidence of God's work in the world? How might we live? If you believe that you are a symbol of God's love to the world, what, what, what might that do in you? I think that's such a beautiful idea for us to wrestle with, but I also want to acknowledge that it might feel like a heavy thing to say. And in some ways it is. I think sometimes in the way we spiritualize the Sermon on the Mount, we do so in order to reduce its challenge. I don't want to do that. I don't want to reduce the challenge that Jesus is offering to us. Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you should pick up your cross and follow me, which we have again made about spiritual platitudes, but it means if you want to be my disciple, you have to love like I do, and I love to death. So I don't want to reduce that. I don't want to turn that away. There is something challenging about the words of Jesus, to be salt and light in the world, to be symbols and gestures of the love of God to the world around us, is to love like God. It's to love our enemies like God does, to turn our cheek like God does. When someone asks us to go a mile, it's to go two miles like God does. It's to be faithful when things are unfaithful because that's who our God is. So that's a difficult hard, even though it's a beautiful word. I think in part it's why Jesus says that the light is supposed to be like a city on a hill. Part of that is because we need one another to live this way. We'll talk about this in the weeks to come, but we cannot do this alone. It's not meant to be individualized or isolated or autonomous. We are a community of people. We love together. But I also want to remind us as we close 
that we are not salt and light because we are so good at being salt and light. In fact, we're salted light, salted light, my favorite kind of ice cream. We are salt and light because we are pretty bad at being salt and light. And God is very good at it. We are salt and light not because we have perfected, because we have achieved the checklist of the Sermon on the Mount, but because Jesus is the exemplification of the Sermon on the Mount. And as we encounter Jesus again and again, we encounter the salt and the light of the world. He is faithful when we are not. He loves his enemies when we are those enemies. He does not retaliate against us, even though we would often retaliate against him. And as we have these experiences of the person of Jesus, it transforms us from the inside out into salt and light. And it is actually, I think, in our imperfection and our stumbling towards Jesus that we are most salt and light in the world. And we recognize, oh, we need one another and we need the person we follow. And we are salt and light when we name that this world needs salt and light. When we recognize the sin around us, when we recognize the brokenness around us, when we recognize that the world does re- retaliate, does not love its neighbors, let alone its enemies, when we name that the world is in need of salt and light, we are salt and light. It is not about us being perfect. It's not a list of requirements. As King said, it is about being so God-intoxicated that we cannot help but participate. We cannot help but see a new vision of the world around us inspired and proclaimed and lived in the person and words of Jesus that in his words and in his life and in his invitation we are intoxicated and follow and we name all the times that it doesn't look quite like Jesus' ideal. And then we with the world, are invited to taste and see again. To know ourselves as welcomed and invited to be salt and light again. That's why we gather at this table every single week. One, it demonstrates the words that have been said in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus made possible a table to those who retaliated against him. He invited those who did not welcome him to have a seat at the table. He loved his friends and his enemies until his enemies became his friends. And we practice that every single week. The Sermon on the Mount is lived in this practice. And yes, it demonstrates and it declares something to the world around us, but first and foremost, it declares something to us that we are invited to taste and see the goodness of God again, that we are invited to taste and know this new vision that Jesus has made possible and available to us. And as we taste the grace again, we are transformed into salt and light. So Missio, in a moment, I'm going to invite you to this table. Not to know the sermon as a list of requirements or another burden, but instead to taste and see the thing that Jesus is doing to be transformed and compelled so that we can't help but live it out in the world around us. Let's pray. 
Jesus, thank you for your words again today. Would we hear the vision of the Sermon on the Mount that is preached by you and lived by you, and would it call us to be your followers? The disciples who pick up our cross and follow you because we're so compelled by you and your words, and we are experiencing the grace of you here and now. And God, thank you for heroes and leaders in our faith, like King, who help us see more like relevant or timely visions of this. Not perfectly, but give us examples and stories that inspire our own living. Because you draw us to the table and as you draw us together, would you continue to inspire us to be salt and light? People who love like you love because we have been so loved. Because we pray these things in your name. Amen.